Hello everyone and welcome to Changing Conversations with me, Billy Burke. And me, Sarah Philp. We're really glad you've joined us on this podcast. This podcast is all about changing conversation. Conversation is one of the oldest ways to nurture the conditions for growth and improvement. We come alive when we talk about what's important to us and it's this that has the potential to guide us into new and different ways of being and offer the potential for great things. In this podcast, we want to explore the big questions and the small questions. It's a place for thinking and conversations that hold the potential for change. You will hear from us as well as some of our guests. We would love to hear from you and for you to get involved. You can also follow us on Twitter at Changing Conversations. As the official podcast partner to the World Education Summit, I'm delighted to bring you this special episode with Professor Vivienne Robinson. It's about two years since I last spoke to Vivienne, and at the time she mentioned she was writing her next and final book, and I was really keen that we would have another opportunity to chat. Her latest book, Virtuous Leadership, Doing the Right Work in the Right Way, builds on her previous work on student-centred leadership and reduced change to increase improvement. In the words of Michael Fullen, Vivianne is as comfortable around the details of the trees as she is stepping back to take in the forest. I hope you enjoy this conversation as an opportunity to be with both the trees and the wood. If you're joining us at the World Education Summit, you can join Vivianne on the headliner stage live on the 22nd of March, or of course you can catch up at any time after that in the World Education Summit Central. Vivian, it's lovely to see you again. It's been about two years since we last spoke, which seems unbelievable. How how are you and how have you been? Um, I'm well, thank you, Sarah. Yes, it's, it's flown by, hasn't it? Now, lots happened in terms of COVID and lockdowns. And then, of course, in New, in New Zealand and where I live in mm-hmm. Auckland, um, we've had some extremely bad weather and the wettest summer on record. Um, we've been hit by Cyclone Gabrielle pretty badly. Mm. Um, our property's fine, but in the valley below me, there are houses that have been wiped out by slips coming down cliffs on the edge of the beach. Um, so it's a very, very, uh, climate change is starting to really, um, uh, bite. Yeah. Making itself known, isn't it? Mm. Yes. Yeah. Well, we are glad you are you are safe and well. Um, so when the la- when we spoke the last time, um, you mentioned that you were in the process of writing your your next book. In fact, I think you said it was your final book. <laughs> yeah. Um, and just in October last year, your your third book, Virtuous Educational Leadership, was published. So. I'm delighted that we have the opportunity to dip into that and have a few conversations around the themes emerging from that. But I suppose one thing that I'm really curious about, um, given that's your third book, is there is there a thread that connects your student-centered leadership, the reduced change to increase improvement, and then this, this book around virtuous leadership? Yes, well, these are these are all these books are about educational leadership so that of course is is one of the main threads but in the first book student-centered leadership I um, was deeply focused on what are the leadership 
practices, I call them dimensions of practice, that we know something about in terms of their impact on student outcomes. So big theme is um, that it's about how leaders make a difference to the students for whom they're responsible and how can they identify the practices and the standards for doing those practices well that are likely to um, increase their impact on their students. So that was the first one. The second book, Reduce Change to Increase Improvement, was written as a result of my, um, well, first of all, my being invited to write it, but also it sort of resonated deeply with me because I'd seen so much effort going in by teachers and leaders into improvement projects, in many cases, annual improvement projects as specified in their strategic and annual plans that had had um, uh, disappointing results, disappointing in terms of the amount of effort and time and money uh, that's gone into those improvement efforts and that hadn't um, delivered what was hoped for by way of improvement. So that book is about how to um, make a distinction between change and improvement, because I'm they're very different, and how to increase the probability that those change efforts will lead to improvement. And and particularly improvement in student outcomes, the equity and excellence of student outcomes. So that's picking up that theme about, so leading, how to lead change in a way that delivers improvement. Mm -hmm. for and, and improvement defined, again, as in the first book, as um, better outcomes for students. Um, and in the third book, I... Um, adding to that theme by saying, okay, I've talked in student-centered leadership and in reduced change about the uh, what leaders need to be able to know and the and do in order to produce better outcomes. Um, but that's not the full story. That there is a dimension of leadership that. I haven't written about before and that's leadership character so it's not only about what sort what we want our leaders to know and do but what sorts of persons do we want them to be and that's about that's about character it's about their motivation in particular mm -hmm. um, and the way they think and reason and the worthiness of their practices so for example you can be highly capable in and knowledgeable about the use of data mm -hmm. um, but you can use that capability for bad purposes um, for example to show that your school's better than the one down the road to um select the students for external examinations that are going to make your school look look better um, 
the worst in the worst cases of course which hit the headlines particularly in the united states capability and data can be used for fraudulent purposes and that's a, and and the purposes and the motivations that drive that capability are about character and so the book's called um virtuous uh leadership um virtuous educational leadership um, in order to highlight that it is about the virtues, in other words, the desirable character traits mm-hmm. or desirable dispositions of character that are particularly relevant to the work of educational leaders. So does that constitute a thread, do you think, Sarah? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it does. I think it's interesting to see, yeah, how those three um, areas of your kind of research and your work link together. And and I know that certainly your first two books have been very popular with many of the people that I know listen to the podcast and and that I certainly talk to. And I'm sure they will be as interested in in this one. Um, From your perspective, was was this one harder, more complicated um, to write than the other two? Or um, Yes, I'd say yes for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, in order to write about the virtues that are particularly relevant to educational leadership, I had to know, I had to dip into in, in virtue theory, which mm-hmm. was com- completely new for me. And, and, And that led me to Aristotle because Aristotle's notion of virtues is a highly practical one. Mm -hmm. Um, Virtues are not things to be talked about. They are things to be demonstrated and practiced. And Aristotle talks explicitly about that. And of course, that was very attractive to me because I'm not interested in um, mission and vision and values in an abstract sense. Indeed, I think far too much time is spent crafting mission statements and value statements um, that actually don't connect with practice at all. It's quite a different exercise being able to be virtuous as opposed to talk virtuous. um, and and if and I use in the book the example of Enron and the example of their um, uh, sort of uh, vision that they no doubt went on various retreats in order to craft the words the right way. Mm-hmm. And it's all full of desirable things like respect and collaboration and integrity and all the rest of it. And it meant absolutely nothing mm-hmm. in terms of the practices of leaders and managers at Enron. So virtues have got very, are very different from, from values um, and they're, as I said, high, highly, pr- highly practical. So it was difficult to write because that was new territory for me. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that made it difficult was that I was determined, as as in my other books, to have a very strong string linking the theoretical aspects of virtues with what does this look like in practice Mm -hmm. and so like my other books I have 
numerous examples, not only little scenarios, but um, transcripts of conversations that illustrate virtuous responses and non-virtuous responses to particular challenges. Mm -hmm. And so the, that's the book's full of those examples, which um, many of which were derived from um, about 25 years worth of workshops with leaders yeah. building the capabilities uh, that, that, that they require uh, and the virtues in order to do uh, with their work well. Yeah. And so I guess what I'm hearing there is that although the the virtues part or the virtues theory may be new to you, actually the content and the thinking has probably been growing and building over 25 years. Yes. Yes, that's yes, that's right. And it was just, you know, digging into transcripts that I'd kept from research. Um yeah. and from from in many cases way back and and reframing those in terms of well okay there's some skills going on here but also there's some there's some virtues that are at play or not and one of the reasons why I could do that and make inferences about virtues was because in some of those transcripts they were annotated by the thoughts that the leaders had at the time. And those thinking processes are, are very um, useful in terms of understanding the motivations that are driving the leader's um, speech and actions. Yeah. And you've you've kind of touched on this a little bit in what you've said there, but the, the subtitle to the book is Doing the Right Work the Right Way. Yes, um, you've talked about the importance of that and the importance for you of of the theory connecting with the practice and that it should be highly practical and it's about doing. Can you can you unpack that that subtitle, that tagline for us doing the right work the right way? Yes. Well, um, that that there's quite a story in that in that tagline. I mean, first of all, the challenges um, well, what is the right work yeah. for educational leaders and how do you determine what the right work is? Mm -hmm. And so I have to build an argument about that. And I do that by talking about the purposes of education. So mm -hmm. um, the right work for educational leaders is pursuit, dedicated pursuit of the proper purposes of education. And so that took me back into philosophers of education and their debates about educate the purpose of education. And I um and I'd I'd been in that territory many, many years ago, but not for a while, and um and settled on, on three pro proper purposes mm -hmm. of education. Um the first is um preparation mm -hmm. for life, including paid employment and citizenship and partaking um, in, a, in uh, society in a ways that are fulfilling and making a contribution. So that prepar pr preparation, but 
doing that in a way which also meets the uh, second purpose, which is um, socialization into various communities of practice, um, which might be um, disciplinary communities. So the difference between teaching maths and teaching students to be mathematical thinkers mm-hmm. is an example of that socialization, in this case, into a community of of mathematicians into a discipline, forms of disciplinary knowledge and thinking. Mm -hmm. Uh, Other forms of socialization might be in terms of um, uh, recognizing and socializing into religious communities, um, cultural, indigenous communities. So that's socialization. And then the third one, which is often in some tension, particularly, with the other two, which is appropriate, is um, um, building the autonomy of the person yeah. or, and autonomy understood in a rich sense, not of people, young people, children and young people become autonomous in the sense that they are self-regulated learners who are not subject to other people's um, unjustified control or to um, uncontrolled inner drives, their own uncontrolled inner drives. So the barriers to autonomy are both are not just external they're internal as well and so out of that you get a notion of autonomy that is um much richer than just for example oh these are senior students so they should have half a day at home a week to pursue their own projects I mean, I've seen that notion of autonomy in in senior schools, and for some students, it's a complete disaster. <laughs> so, because they haven't got the self, they haven't been taught the self, the habits of self regulation that enable them to use that half day productively. So that is not pursuit of the proper purpose of Mm -hmm. education as building autonomous learners because those learners have not had opportunities to learn the self-regulatory skills and dispositions that are key to the proper exercise of autonomy. Mm So that's, so those are, so the proper purposes constitute the sort of compass that Mm -hmm. leaders should have and they should be, you know, that's their North Star, the proper purposes. Now, that's very abstract. So what is the work that is involved in pursuit of those purposes? And the work, and so you, so I derived that by a sort of back, backward mapping process, and I said, "Well, if those are if though if that's what students have to learn, what does the science of teaching and learning tell us about how that is learnt? 
So I didn't leap straight to what does it mean for leaders? Mm -hmm. I said, okay, those are the purposes. How do students, so I took a student-centered view, how do students learn those purposes? Mm -hmm. And and that is largely specified and 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 those purposes become translated into modern curricula, which talk about um, actually developing self-regulation, the ability to cooperate, collaborate, be independent learners, critical thinkers. You know, the modern curricula specify the things that students need to learn, the capabilities it's often called, or competencies, um, to go towards those purposes. And that implies a f what is known as deep learning. In other words, learning that involves comprehension, critical thinking, and problem solving and transferable skills. Um, rather than surface learning. Mm -hmm. So if you take deep learning as the as the work that students and teachers have to do, mm -hmm. then we know quite a lot about how that learning happens. And we also know quite a lot about how you have to teach the forms of pedagogy that foster deep learning. So in the book I've that was also one of reasons why the book was harder to write than the others is that I had to go and do a whole lot of reading about the science of learning and teaching and deep learning and that is summarized in the early chapters of the book so people can get hopefully reasonably quickly up to date with with that then if that's the science of learning and teaching then what do leaders need to then what does that imply for leadership? And the rest of the book is about that. So what does that imply about what the right work for leaders is? The right work for leaders is supporting their teachers in teaching for deep learning that embraces those three purposes. Mm -hmm. And would you say, obviously the right work is different. How similar or different is the right way and we'll get into what that means in a little bit but how similar or different is that to kind of generic leadership that you might read yeah. yes well that's the that's the right work but doing it the right way is where the virtues come in okay so you've got a teacher let's say who um is teaching for mathematical fluency but like how I remember being taught maths you, the teacher demonstrated examples mm -hmm. uh, then you did a few in class and then you were set hundreds to do for homework mm -hmm. and and I always got them right and didn't have a clue what I was doing <laughs> so so that's um so let's say a leader sees a teacher who's teaching for surface Mm -hmm. learning i.e getting the right answers but but not really being able to explain the answers or see different ways of reaching an answer for maths problems etc and wants to, to help that teacher shift to teaching for deep learning um that leader can do it in way in in ways that that are vicious or virtuous in other words instructing the teacher 
punishing the teacher subtly, uh, bullying the teacher, ignoring the teacher, giving up on the teacher. Those are all the wrong way. And the right way is using your interpersonal virtues, your leadership virtues, your problem-solving virtues to get alongside that teacher to help them improve. So that would be the right way of doing uh, the right work. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to the wrong way of doing the right work. Yeah, yeah. So tell us what are the... What are the definitions or how do you describe those three virtues of leadership, problem solving and interpersonal? Well, um, the leadership virtues, are, I, I, may, I define that in order to set, I mean, in a way, they're all leadership virtues. But, but this, what I specifically call leadership virtues are the motivations that drive your desire to be a leader. Okay. So, so what are the, why do you want to lead? And, and, and the virtuous, virtuous leaders want to lead in education because they care about the well-being and flourishing of the children and young people for whom they're responsible. Mm. They do not lead because they want more money. They think they can do it better than the next guy because they want to get out of the classroom um you know those are those are those are understandable motives but they should not be the primary motives the primary motives is to pursue the purposes in a way that enables you to influence more teachers and students for the better than you would otherwise be able to do. Mm-hmm. So, so that's what's meant by leadership virtues. Um, and, and they're quite, and, and they sort of are quite scarce in some ways because there are too many teachers who do not want to be leaders. It's not that they want to be leaders for the wrong reasons, they don't want to be leaders at all. In other words, their leadership virtues aren't strong enough. Okay. Okay. So they they are not keen, you know, they don't want to influence their colleagues. They don't want to be a tall poppy. They, they don't want to take on the responsibilities. They, they may have good reasons for that, but we need to foster leadership virtues really strongly. And we don't. Um, so you know the, the the notion of the stress of teachers, and we we recognise that. But but the flip side of that is that we don't have enough people, good people, coming forward to be leaders. So the, there's there's both the leadership virtues can are lacking, not only because people may be in leadership roles for the wrong reasons, but they're also lacking in the sense that people aren't in leadership roles at all because they don't want to influence their colleagues. And when you say we should foster those leadership virtues strongly and we don't, what what sort of things could we do to foster, foster that? Is it an internal thing or is it a contextual thing or both? Oh, it's um, it's both. It's both. Um, 
but certainly contextual in terms of, well, for example, um, teachers who want to come forward, um, teachers who want who are not afraid to demonstrate their expertise in appropriate ways. Teachers, you know, we need to be nurturing and valuing that, especially among women. Uh, I mean, if you look at, and in, in, in I think educational leadership is very different from leadership in corporates, for example, because, because the purposes are different. That's mm -hmm. what makes it distinctive. But women leaders in corporates have written about um, being called bossy um, yeah. in ways that are not in ways that their male colleagues are not given that um, uh, uh, attribution <laughs> um, when they behave in some similar ways. So we need to foster, a, we need to have a culture where um, opportunities to lead, uh, that being valued, that being modelled, mm -hmm. um, teachers who do not want to lead being um, talked with in order to understand what is stopping them yeah. and and not just accepting them and ignoring it. Um, they need to be, there needs to be respectful conversations about what do they see as the barriers um, mm -hmm. to them to them coming forward. Yes, and I think the other thing is, is just as, as, as I'm working in several states in Australia and and similarly, in, in England, I, I don't know, I'm sorry, the Scottish system as well, but there, um, there is a great deal of investment in, the, in, not in New Zealand, unfortunately, but there is a great deal of investment in leadership development mm -hmm. and the celebration of people applying to get onto um, aspiring principals programs, the celebration of people succeeding in those programs, the, the tracking of those people through a leadership pipeline. So there is, you know, in many jurisdictions, they're actually doing quite a lot to foster leadership skills and leadership um, um, development. And in and just in, in and I'm talking to some of them about leadership virtues and yeah. actually um, fostering those quite explicitly, which they are now doing in Victoria. They're just starting on um, that aspect of leadership development and trying to weave it into into the others now that's just leadership virtues you asked me about the other two mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yes <laughs> problem solving and interpersonal <laughs> right um well i'm arguing that um the much of the work of leaders is solving complex problems in fact i call it collaborative complex problem solving mm. um and every time you have a goal to improve, doesn't matter what it is, that is a process of problem solving. Um, similarly, you need to talk to a teacher about um, unacceptable performance or behavior or, or not even unacceptable about some challenge that you have or concern that you have about that teacher. That is a process of problem solving. Why? Because a problem is simply a gap between what you currently have 
In other words, what you notice about that teacher's behavior or results and what you would wish for. That gap constitutes a problem if you desire to close the gap. Mm. Okay. And it's the job of leaders to notice those gaps and create the demand that the gap be closed on, on every gap that is priority. And those gaps occur in relationship to individuals, teams, schools, networks, whole jurisdictions. And, the, and, and it is the job of leaders to have standards in their head about what needs to be achieved that create gaps. Mm. The higher the leader's standards, the more the gaps. Yes. Leaders who can't see any problems don't have high enough standards. <laughs> yes. yes. So there's nothing terribly, there is nothing terribly um, horrible or negative or punishing about a problem. A problem is an opportunity to close a gap. Yeah. I think that's a, a very powerful description, though, that you've given us there around problem being a gap between what you currently have and what you wish for if yeah. you deserve to close it as well so there's there's such nuance to that but yeah. then so the, the second part of you know creating the appetite to close the gaps yes that's right because that becomes then and maybe this is where the third one comes in that's that's more than yeah. just the leader that's the interpersonal collaborative bit isn't it that's right which is why the interpersonal virtues and the problem solving virtues are, are so intertwined yeah. uh, and and i mean i've had to write about them somewhat you know separately but also much of the the chapters about these virtues i show how they're constantly integrated and and so in order to solve problems you, the problem solving virtues are numerous but i call them um they're they're analytic which and analytic virtues are about being able to inquire into particularly the causes of the problem and those analytic and be specific and precise and those virtues are, are very um weak um in busy leaders who go from oh there's a problem to what shall we do about it so they completely skip the 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 systematic stages of problem solving that that are required in order to to learn um, why has that problem persisted for so long? Why is this teacher unable to get better results with these students? Um, they're complex. So, you know, we need to take the time to find out why and test our beliefs. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where the open-mindedness virtue is really critical. Um, testing our beliefs about why the students are absent, not just not just assuming they're correct and and acting accordingly immediately. Yeah. Um, so so those analytic virtues to to uncover the causes um, um, of the problem. And then, of course, complex problems have multiple features, multiple contextual conditions that, shape the way the problem unfolds and how it needs to be solved and so 
um, for example, you need to um, take care of the teachers and take care of the students. So mm -hmm. whatever you're going to do to fix the poor results in maths problem solving, mm -hmm. you have to do it in a way that the teachers can manage it. It's within budget and it improves the results and um, meets curriculum requirements. So there's four requirements to solve that problem. And there's great tension between them. Great tension between them. And that is the nature of complex problems. There is always tension between what I call the solution requirements. If we're going to solve this problem, we've got to find a strategy that's workable for the teachers, works for the kids in terms of improving outcomes, is within our budget and our professional development, what we can access for professional development and and, act, and is aligned to the curriculum and external exams, let's say. So that's just four solution requirements. We don't know how we're going to fix it yet, but we have now uncovered what I call solution requir requirements. Whatever we do has to, as far as possible, satisfy all four. Not to a great extent because there's tensions between them but mm -hmm. as far as possible between all four. Now, in order to figure out how to satisfy those four at once and to stop doing oppositions between, oh, well, the teachers can't cope with any more, so we'll carry on, in which case you've sacrificed the students, um, yeah. you need what I call imaginative virtues. And that's the very creative part of problem solving. How can we understand these requirements in ways that enable us to find a creative solution that best satisfies all of them? And Dewey wrote about this process of imaginative deliberation um, in his work on, um, on problem solving. So that's the, the analytic virtues and the imaginative virtues um, that are really um, key to um, to those those problem solving virtues, um, and and it includes open mindedness as well. And then the interpersonal virtues are much more familiar to people because we all know that leadership is an interpersonal process, and so the interpersonal virtues that I talk about, um, particularly uh, in the book, are uh, um, integrity. I'm just looking to make sure I get the right, <laughs> <laughs> the right words. Integrity, respect, courage, and empathy. Mm -hmm. And people understand integrity and they understand respect. The courage one... Um, I've included because I've worked I work all the time with leaders who are stuck um, and paralyzed in terms of tackling a particular problem because they cannot envisage a socially acceptable way of raising the issue mm -hmm. with a colleague or teacher. Mm -hmm. And so and so it is left or it is tackled indirectly or and or in a vague way. Mm -hmm. um, 
they don't want to create a grievance. They don't want the teacher to leave because they can't get a replacement. They have to live with that teacher or group of teachers. Uh, and they don't want to make the tension in the staff room even worse than it already is, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they, those leaders need to be able to integrate respect and courage. And they also need empathy because if they don't have empathy for those teachers who are frustrating them, they won't ask the questions that are required in order to find out why those teachers are not doing what they want them to do. Mm. And that was a key theme of my Reduce Change to Increase Improvement book, was finding out what is in the heads of the teachers that is specifically connected to and causing and sustaining the practices that the leader wants to change. Yeah. Yeah. And and you and you won't leaders won't do that if they are if they instead of bringing empathy to that conversation, they bring frustration, impatience, anger, um disrespect, rudeness, mm-hmm. you know. And and when I say bring to it, I don't mean the words, I mean the thoughts that yeah. are in their head. So these virtues are about, um, are deeply embodied. Um, You have to think in virtuous ways in order to speak in virtuous ways. Okay. There's so many questions I want to ask. (laughs) Um, Can you say a little bit more about that? Because you touched on it um, before when you said you were able to use a number of transcripts and things from your research because you not only had the words, but you also had the, you'd annotated it with the thoughts that were in in the leader's head as they were having those conversations. And I guess you've, you've alluded to it there that you need to think virtuously in order to speak virtuously. But can you say a little bit more? Yes, well, the annotations are done by the leaders. So they disclose what they're thinking when they are saying certain things. So they do the annotations on me. But, for example, um, if you're thinking as you attempt to have the third or fourth conversation with a teacher about their classroom management, if you're thinking, gosh, this teacher is useless, Okay, why hasn't this teacher done what I told them last time? She's useless, lazy, whatever. If you're thinking that, it mm. is really hard to speak in genu- with integrity mm-hmm. in genuinely respectful ways because you've got to edit out the vicious thoughts in order to speak respectfully. And that creates a paralysis often, which is that you don't raise it because you you don't raise the issue because you cannot envisage how to do so respectfully. Mm. And you're quite right because you've got all the disrespect in your head. Mm-hmm. So what, what we work on is how do you reframe what's in your head mm-hmm. so that you can speak respectfully. Mm. 
Okay. Now it's not, you know, and, and it's the reframing is really important because people can learn the first couple of sentences, even so you've got all this, oh, she's useless. Um, why hasn't she learned from that professional development I sent her on? And you've got all of that in your head mm -hmm. and you can sort of learn a couple of opening gambits with that teacher while keeping that thought about how she's useless in your head. But pretty soon you'll be stuck. You'll either be stuck because, or the, the rudeness will leak out. <laughs> yes. Okay. And so it's that that makes leaders um, appear like they lack courage mm. because they cannot envisage a socially acceptable way of speaking with that teacher. Mm -hmm. And so our job as leadership developers is to help them um, reframe what's in their head about that teacher mm -hmm. so that they can speak in, in respectful, courageous, empathic, and with integrity to that teacher. Yeah, yeah. And that's a, de a deeply personal process in many ways, isn't it? Yes, yes, it is. Because unlike most leadership development, it actually accesses people's motives and their reasoning processes. And it's, and it's about people's own theories of action. It's not about other people's leadership theories it's about self so yeah. it is a, but it's also highly practical and that we do all of this work through the um example scenarios and real on the job situations that leaders want our help with yeah yeah the the other thing that popped into my head as you were you were talking about courage was a kind of I guess I was curious do you do you think or do you recognize a relationship between courage and those first leadership virtues around that sort of motivation and drive is that connected with courage in any way I suspect it is actually Sarah I suspect it is because um you have to you know, imagine you're a teacher in a team meeting and you're thinking, gosh, I can contribute to this or I've solved that problem in my classroom. Mm -hmm. So you have to have the courage to be able to put forward and take the risk yeah. of putting forward your idea and stopping the self-censorship that you know those voices inside your head that that's that might might be saying um oh gee you're not the leader of the team you know you're going to make others you know you're going to make others feel bad you're not the leader so and so will get defensive so better to just keep your mouth shut and you know mm -hmm. etc so yes courage is needed to to overcome that, to reframe that as I think I've got something to help. I need to put it out there and check whether others find it helpful. That is a, that way you're reframing. I have, I have got some expertise. The others won't like it. Mm -hmm. That's been reframed to, I think I've got some relevant expertise. I need to, I'd like to explain it. I need to explain it and check whether others find it helpful. Mm -hmm. Now, if you've got that in your head, 
you've just about got the respectful words, yeah. which is, I think I've got something that might be helpful to you mm-hmm. as a team. I'd like to show you how I did that, da-da. Mm-hmm. You've touched on collaborative, complex problem solving, which is a bit of a tongue twister to say to, to get out, but yeah. um, <laughs> a yeah. way of capturing, I think, the, the essence of leadership. And I think um, either I read it sort of online in an article or I read it in the book that you, you said that pretty much all of leadership comes down to being about collaborative, complex problem solving. And and it's a very um, unusual way, I think, of framing leadership. So mm-hmm. I need to say a little bit more about how I come to that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of leadership involved, the work of educational leaders is really three parts to their role. The first part is um, ensuring that the hundreds and hundreds of routines that um, make a school run smoothly uh, are actually um, understood, consistently implemented, and fit for purpose. Now, every one of those routines is a solution to a problem that has been solved some months, years ago. So if you think of doing the timetable and how complex that is the first couple of times you do it, right? But then you get into a routine of how to develop how a routine of what the timetable looks like and you make small adjustments year by year. So instead of it being a complex problem to solve, it is rolling out with minor adjustments a routine. Mm-hmm. But the first time you do it, it is a hugely complex problem. Yeah. So routines are incredibly helpful because they mean that you do not have to do the deliberative problem solving every time. You have an on-the-shelf routine, which you reach for and roll it out, whether it's the bus schedules, whether it's the duty rosters, whether it's the timetable, you know, there are hundreds and hundreds of them, you know, how we deal with absence, etc. hundreds and hundreds of those routines. So that's problem solving, except it's the result of prior work. Mm -hmm. The second part is dealing with crises and surprises, which seem to be an increasing part of educational leaders' work with COVID and climate change and, and all the rest of it. Now, Crisis and surprises is fast problem solving. Mm -hmm. It's got to be done fast. Often it it can be minimally collaborative and it's it's complex. But even so, I mean, in Australia, they have catastrophic fire days. They now have a routine for catastrophic fire days. Mm -hmm. So it is a crisis. It is a surprise, but we reach for the routine. And then the third part is the deliberative problem solving. And in there is all the improvement work, which I think is the most important part. And Mm -hmm. that is where the deliberative, slow, systematic, collaborative problem solving takes place. Because we set goals in those areas where business as usual hasn't worked well enough. Mm -hmm. Okay, 
it's, the, you know, the results show that what we're doing for whether it's student well-being or absence or achievement, the results show that for this group of students, our business as usual is not delivering. There's a gap between what we got and what we want. Yeah. Okay. So in that area of elite, that is the improvement, what I call the improvement area. And that's where the systematic stages of complex problem solving are really become important. Yeah. And um, I know that one of the things people have appreciated about your, your other two books is helping people to break down those really complex things like yeah. landing improvement. Um, what are those five stages? Can you give us a, a, a quick insight? <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, the first stage is problem identification. Mm -hmm. simply identifying the gap and gaining agreement on the problem to be solved. Now, we agree that the reading results for this group of kids are not good enough. Mm -hmm. And if people agree with that and agree to get on board and trying to do something about it, that is that stage successfully completed. The teachers and you may, and the leaders may have completely different views about the cause of the reading problem. Yeah. That is not for that first stage. Okay. So the first stage is just agreeing that okay. those reading results aren't good enough and we should try to do something about it. Yeah. That's stage one. And one of the things that people do is they they don't complete stage one adequately because they're anticipating all these future disagreements. Yes. Okay. But if you can agree that that the results are unsatisfactory, then you've got some really important common ground from which to work through your disagreements about cause. And that's the second stage, which is inquiry into causes. Okay. And and that um in that is a very important stage because it's not only finding out the causes, and I'm talking school-based courses, courses that can be leveraged by leaders and teachers. Mm -hmm. um, but also, it is a stage of testing beliefs about causes. That's actually incredibly important. So, so I, in the book, I've got a case study on absence in a senior secondary school. Mm -hmm. And and in the stage, the leaders asked teachers what, which is a important part of the collaborative process, asked teachers what they thought the causes of the student absence were. And they got a lot of home-related causes and, and not enough money to drive the kids to school, um, <clears throat> you know, the breakfasts, um, Com, uh, com, um, dysfunctional households, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then when they did the survey and the focus groups with the kids, those causes were practically non-existent. Mm. So those beliefs that had driven um, some of the attempts to solve the problem were, yeah. were not supported. They causes of the absence problem were around um, poor management of absence in mm -hmm. terms of just um, monitoring it, 
um, teachers knowing it, reporting it, consistent use of the student management system, students themselves not having a clue how many half days they'd been away, and then the, 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 the cultural issues around absence, and by culture I mean school culture, teacher culture, um, as captured in the phrase of some students, the only people who know that I'm away are my friends. Um, so it was those sorts of causes. So there was management, there was culture and expectations of, of, of attendance. Mm -hmm. And there was also um, some related to relationships with particular teachers and, and particular lessons. Mm -hmm. And so that was a critically important second phase of complex problem solving because it enabled teachers to test their beliefs and get a new language and shared understanding of why we have this absence problem that is so bad and has been going on for years and years, despite prior attempts to solve it. Mm -hmm. So that's inquiry into causes. Mm -hmm. then, then when you understand the causes, you're in a position to say, well, we don't know what the solution is yet, but we know what the requirements for a good solution or the criteria for a good solution are. And that's the third phase, agreeing on a set of requirements that will be used to evaluate the merit of proposed solution strategies, right? So if with that, with that knowledge of cause, subsidizing school transport mm -hmm. is not a solution is not a good solution strategy because it doesn't meet the because it doesn't meet the solution requirements yeah. which do not include the issue of um needing to address the cost pressures on families. Mm -hmm. There is no cost pressure on families. So why would we have a solution saying subsidized transport? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. On the other hand, there is a solution requirement, which is consistent implementation of the student management system in terms of our absence databases and communication of absence data to teachers, form teachers, particularly teachers, students, and families. Yeah. So so for, so there was an, in that case, and it's, this is chapter 13 of the book, um, mm. and there was about 20 solution requirements mm. um, for different aspects of the solution. So here are the, so there was a set of solution requirements for managing absence data, had to be timely, mm -hmm. had to be consistently used by all teachers, had to be reported to da, da, da. So there's four solution requirements for that side of it, okay? Mm -hmm. And so then the solution strategies up, 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 become obvious. Okay. They become obvious. We need to... Um, use or tweak our student management systems in terms of the data. The data was mostly fine. What was actually not fine were the people issues, which yeah. is, you know, using, using it, doing it, 
reporting it, communicating it, talking about it. Mm. Okay. And then there was a set of solution strategies around um, the teaching and learning. And the relate and and teachers who so what do we need to do in order to solve address the causes of that area? Well, we need to do things that improve this group of students' relationships with this group of teachers. Don't know how to do it yet, but we need to do that. We need to um, build teacher capability in. Um, dealing with behavior management for certain groups of students because teachers were thankful that certain students were absent. Mm -hmm. They liked them being away mm -hmm. because they were difficult to manage. So we need to have some solution strategies that help those teachers. So mm -hmm. we need to grow teacher confidence in managing those students within their classes. Mm -hmm. We need to teach this group of teachers how to teach for understanding rather than rote learning yeah we need to replace quizzes and worksheets mm. with richer more engaging lessons in yeah. this area so so that's um so once you've got those solution requirements then it's and that is the um third stage then you get to the solution strategies and implementing them yeah so how do we know that how do we know that we're implementing these we'll take the routine of communicating timely information about which students are absent to the form teachers who meet with their students every Thursday. Um, well, we need to have 100% of absence reports to form teachers by 8 a.m. Thursday morning. Mm -hmm. That's your that's your that's your implementation, that's yeah. your indicator yeah. that, that that solution strategy has been implemented. Mm -hmm. Because the hardest part in improvement is actually implementation. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that's stage four. And then stage five is evaluate impact, which is evaluate the outcomes for students. What happens to the absence mm -hmm. for particular groups of students, particular year levels, et cetera. Does, is the goal met? of improved absence. So those are the five stages. Identify and agree on, on the fact that there is a problem to be solved. Second mm -hmm. stage, inquire into causes and arrive at an agreed set of validated causes. Third stage, agree on the solution requirements. In other words, agree on what would count as a good solution so that silly suggestions can be easily ruled out because they don't meet. So if the cause of the reading problem is lack of comprehension, mm -hmm. then we rule out programs which te just teach vocabulary and don't address comprehension, right? Then we, so that's the solution requirements. Fourth is implement your solution strategies that meet the solution requirements as far as possible. Yes. And, the, and and have some indicators that tell you whether it's being done. Mm. And the fifth is evaluate whether the goal's met. Mm. 
Yeah. And so from your work and your research, which which parts of that process do you think we typically um, don't do enough of or we skip skip over? Um, in our research, the typical leader, the typical problem solving is going from identifying the problem to um, suggesting solutions or asking for solutions. Yeah. So leaders debate whether they should suggest solutions or ask for solutions from the other person. That is actually not the most important thing. Um, the most important. So they skip causal inquiry. Yeah. They skip causal inquiry and they certainly skip solution requirements. Now, yeah. if a, if a teach if teachers have in front of them at a meeting a whiteboard that says our solution needs to. Mm. Address have a consistent um, student manage absence management system. All form teachers discussing absence with their students. Um, absence data communicated to parents. We don't know how yet, but but parents, etc. Um, um, engaging lessons in these in in these particular subjects and for these students etc then teachers that's what's called owning the problem yeah <laughs> because you can see the set of requirements that are needed need to be addressed by the solution strategies that you come up with it's not just one thing. It's not just, oh, it's a management system or oh, it's this teacher or that teacher. It's actually the whole lot. Now, you may be a part of it in the sense that, that you're the head of the department where there's particular problems with absence, mm -hmm. but you see yourself as part of the whole and it's a school-wide effort. Yeah, yeah. And I can really see how inquiring into the causes and those requirement solutions or requirements of the solutions would really help to create the conditions for conversations and problem solving that is truly class. That's right. And so leaders need those interpersonal skills and um, the problem solving virtues to be able to lead that process because yes. that's what leading improvement is. Yeah. It's it's leading the systematic structure of problem solving um, with the interpersonal processes. Yeah. And so that's where the um, integration of the problem solving and the interpersonal virtues is so important. Mm -hmm. And I've got transcripts in the book which illustrate those various um stages yeah yeah Vivian I feel like we could talk all night in my case and all day in your case but <laughs> we do need to we do need to um pull the conversation to a close but can I just say thank you once again for giving so generously of your time and your knowledge and insight as well and really bringing the the core and the essence of of the book to life for us and giving us kind of real examples tangible examples um, of what that means so thank you very very much oh you're welcome Sarah thank you for listening folks we really value you taking the time and space to join us and we hope 
that you take something positive from it. We'd love to hear your reflections, so please get involved via Twitter or contact us directly by email. Thanks again, stay safe and take good care.